Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode in our Biotech Decoded podcast series. I'm Yaron Werber, Biotechnology Analyst at Cowan, and I'm super excited to be joined by David Epstein and Laura Hamel in this episode, Owning It in the C-Suite, to discuss owning your role as a C-Suite executive, accountability, and being a leader in biotech companies. David Epstein has over 30 years experience as the CEO of Seagen and Novartis Pharmaceuticals, and was an executive partner at Flagship Pioneering. In his career, he oversaw the development and commercialization of over 30 new drugs, including several blockbusters. He sits on several biotech boards. Laura also has over 30 years of global commercial experience as Executive Vice President, Global Commercial Operations at Gilead Sciences, and Senior Vice President and General Manager of U.S. Commercial Operations at Amgen. She was chairperson of Amgen's Senior Women's Leadership Council and currently sits on several biotech boards. So David and Laura, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you both. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, you know, we spoke, David, about two months ago, and then Laura, we kind of got to know each other about two months ago when we were writing the big report on the biotech executive. Since then, David, I think you've been a little busy selling a small company called Seagen. So congrats on that outcome. It's great to see it. Thank you. It's, it's actually really good for patients. It's a perfect combination, these two companies of Pfizer and Seagen. I was really happy that you both accepted the invites because you both are very complementary. You really have uh, very different backgrounds that are very synergistic. And you've both been very successful as executives um, in global pharma and, frankly, biotech. And you both sort of have both of those areas. Maybe, David, to you, as you think about your background, what really made you stand out in your role? Yeah, I still wonder if I stand out in a good way or maybe not not so good way. Um, continue to learn to learn every day. I think you know if I think in my most recent roles, um, generally it's this combination of being able to align people around the big picture and deliverables, while at the same time understanding enough of the content that I can you know really pressure test uh, you know the detailed plans to make sure that we can deliver what that big vision, you know, is, is pretending uh, to, to provide, uh, you know, as, as a, as a leader, I like this idea of living at this intersection of science and commercialization, and then rallying the right people around, you know, delivering breakthrough medicines. Because okay, so it's ma- making, making the right decisions, ultimately being very patient focused. Yeah. But I think it's knowing where you, you you want to go and getting people into a into a setting which allows them to be high performing. If I remember correctly, I hope I don't quote the wrong uh, the wrong book, but I think in Alice in Wonderland there's a line, it's probably the Mad Hatter or somebody, but there's a line that says if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Uh, I th- I think it's pretty important to figure out where you want to go. There might be more than one road to get there, and you might have to make some detours along the way, but you really have to have clarity on 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 what the goal was. Mm. Laura, what about you? You know, I, I totally agree with what David said. I think there is a, a recipe that is absolutely critical around um, being successful because everything that we do in uh, this, our pharma, pharma biotech industry, and I think 
in many industries requires a very large group for success. It's, there's usually not one single you know, player. And as a matter of fact, uh, you can have success in one area, but if the whole organization isn't aligned, you can fail. So I think that what uh, I have learned over my years in terms of standout roles is take as much as you can from every role and learn as much as you can from every role because it's like, it's, and I would say this to people um, that ask me for advice on their career, take your time to build your building blocks because at the end of the day, I will have a very deep building block around the commercial organization or maybe my experiences from living in different parts of the world, but somebody else will have different experiences from the R&D side or for, from the finance side. And I think what's so wonderful about being in this, this industry is the collective wisdom of many is what really rises all, all the boats. And um, it's, you know, for being in the, the uh, industry for 35 years, I never, ever was bored. And I always felt like there was another mountain to climb, another, you know, another opportunity to conquer, another breakthrough to make a significant change in, in mankind. And I, I feel grateful to be in such a wonderful industry. So, so it's important to, to figure out where you're going to go, right? First of all, you need to go as, as you're crossing the ocean. Do you want to go to, to Liverpool? Do you want to end up in, in Spain? There's oftentimes perhaps disagreements about um, which road gets you there, right? Not, not many people can just zoom out to the, the satellite and kind of look zoom back down. So maybe, D- David, to you, because th- is that, that oftentimes is one of the hardest things to get right is... Is, do you agree or is it really what's so hard to get right is having the, uh, the actual knowledge base to get you there? Yeah, in, in part, it depends upon if we're talking about leading a relatively small organization or, or a big complex one. I would argue the bigger the organization, the more complexity, it's, it becomes even more important to have clarity around where you're going and, and, the, and the guardrails to get there and having in place the processes and processes and systems to support all, all of that. When you get down to a smaller company, it can often be clearer what you're trying to accomplish, unless, of course, you happen to have, for example, a new modality that you're working on, which could have applications in many, many different, say, therapeutic areas or in different ways. And then making making a decision and focusing sometimes can be uh, difficult. Uh, it can also be stress-inducing because you don't know that much about the modality yet. And, and I say the other thing to get right, which we haven't discussed at all, but we're living through, you know, we're living through a, a pretty horrific time for biotech funding, particularly for small companies, uh, is being able to also make sure those decisions you're making and 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 the path you're on are supportable by whatever the financial requirements of your organization are going to be. Um, it's just, it was a lot easier to do this two years ago than it is today. Yeah. Everybody was super bright and everything was super promising about two years ago. The bar is a lot, the bar, the skepticism, I should say is a lot higher. Laura, what does being a leader on the executive mean, executive committee mean to you? I'm not sure it always means the same to different people. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think that and, it, and to, to David's point, it, it also is significantly different if you're in a large organization versus if you're in a small organization. Uh, I think when you're in a very large organization, you need to manage up 
across and down. And you need to make your group, however big it is, whether it's 2,000 people or 100 people, you need to make them feel like they are you know, in the driver's seat, especially your leadership team. Uh, and when I say leadership team, sometimes it's not direct reports. It could be cross-functional experts that are part of your team. Uh, so how do you bring everyone together? Um, but I would say that the most important things that I've learned over the years around it being part of an executive team is that you need to think and act at the enterprise level. So while we all have our functions, you know, how do you make sure you wear your, you know, your functional hat, what, what allows you to be successful with your function? But at the end of the day, it's really the enterprise that we're all supporting once you're at the executive level. Uh, so it definitely you know, goes beyond and, and requires you to stretch. I also think that making sure that I would say corporate strategy you know, comes from the top. Usually the executive team will be accountable for building that. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to be able to roll it up and down, right? So the reason why we do five-year you know, plans at the corporate level is so that then the functions can do what I would almost call sub-plans underneath that. So we're all you know, supporting and underpinning the success of the company. Um, so I think the executive uh, needs to be able to wear multiple hats to be able to fulfill the aspirations of the corporation, even if it sometimes means functionally, you know, you have to do something that may not to be, may not be optimizing, you know, what you would like to do. And we're, we're working together for a bigger, bigger purpose. Yeah. I think that was really well said. It's all about thinking about the enterprise while your function delivers whatever it's supposed to deliver. And, and frankly, in our business, very little is done within a function. We, you know, we, we run through project teams, we run through brand teams. We, you know, it's the team, it's a team-based industry. Uh, you can, you know, one little trick can be imagine you were the CEO and ask yourself, you know, what does that person need to organize all of us and how can I contribute? Can I help with the thinking on strategy? Can I help with the thinking on culture? Can I help look, be, you know, out a few years to make sure that we're doing the right things now so that we'll be, we'll be well positioned? Uh, as soon as somebody in an executive team says, you know, that's not my job, you know, you're already probably have a problem and that person's not living up to what's expected of them. Yeah. So, so David, to, to that point specifically, you're talking about being a company leader as opposed to being a functional area leader. And Laura, you, you touched on that too. Um, in, in smaller company companies, big decisions have carry significant connotations. In bigger companies, as you mentioned, you have a lot of coordination and a lot of bureaucracy or politics to kind of navigate. So it's a question of taking risk for your own career, right? on behalf of the greater good, how do you navigate those two? And how do successful people navigate those two? I'll, I'll just answer part of the question uh, because it, it hits a, uh, a sore spot. Um, there were several times in my career, particularly when I was back at Novartis, when I didn't put my career on the line to help the company make the right decision. So I brought an idea, for example, about an acquisition and as you can imagine, in a big company, there are lots of people that say no. And at the end of the day, finally, you get to the chairman and the board, and you make the pitch, and they don't they don't do it. And you know now, of course, it's easy to look back and realize that those acquisitions would have been transformational for our company. Uh, there was one I learned from those deals. There was another deal that we did we did actually uh, do, and I'll, I'll tell the little story. Um, I flew. Uh, with a guy named Irve Opino, who you know, because he's the CEO of uh, of Insight, 
and a fellow named Manny Lichman, who you may know, he's a CEO of a smaller biotech company. We flew down uh, to Delaware a couple of days before Christmas one year uh, to meet with um, Insight Corporation. Uh, they had a jack inhibitor. Uh, they had a cement inhibitor, had some other products. Uh, I was very interested in that jack inhibitor bringing into the Novartis portfolio. I had learned from my previous experience of not putting my career on the line when advocating for a deal. And I said, this time I was going to. Went through all, went through all the, the process, proved the science was good in my opinion. The market was there. The price we were going to pay was reasonable. And at the very end, the CEO of the company said to me, um, I don't want to, I'm not going to approve it. And so I said, why? And he said, well, my gut tells me it's not the right deal. It's not a good deal. And I said, well, that's interesting. Cause my, my gut tells me for the following three reasons, it's the perfect deal for us. And we went back and forth for a little while. And then finally he, he could see obviously that I was adamant that we had to do this deal. And he said to me, fine, you can do the deal, but if the drug doesn't work, I'm going to cut your head off. I, those, are the, those are the exact words from the CEO. He was the CEO and chairman of Novartis at the time. Um, it was a big learning experience for me. As you know, it's turned out to be a blockbuster medicine and, uh, and it all worked out. But if I would have done that more often in my career, probably could have, I, I probably could have added even more value for the organization. And what it comes down to is just having enough confidence that if they don't like what they're, they're going to hear, or if you really get, you really get your bosses upset, maybe they'll fire you and you have to go work somewhere else. And if you have enough confidence, maybe that doesn't matter. Or maybe that's even better in some ways. I was just going to comment on that. I think that's a, a very interesting perspective. And I think we've all walked that tightrope where uh, you feel like, you know, should I be the one that speaks out when no one else is? Everyone else is looking down at the table instead of putting the, you know, the, the elephant in the room on the table. Uh, and I probably have been more the one to lean in on that. That doesn't always, you know, get friends and uh, people excited, but it, I think it's important to be, to be able to do that. Now, I, I did not take such a risk as you have, but I say that I think that's things that should be celebrated because when an organization doesn't allow for some failures, you, you are going to limit your successes because you've already told the organization that we're putting you in this box and this is how we're going to re reward people. And so, uh, you know, I truly believe you get what you reward. Uh, and it's important to tell people you want, if you want to be on the edge and you want to look for opportunities. And when I say on the edge, not from a compliance perspective, but from looking at deals and things that, you know, could go either way, you, you have to say sometimes they're going to go our way and sometimes they're not. But let's get, let's get our best, you know, our best shot. Don't be, don't be conservative because you'll never do anything risky. And then you'll, like you said, miss the, the really big opportunities. Yeah. So th there's, there's two sides to risks, right? That there is um, getting it wrong and perhaps not being diligent enough to get it right um, or not having the right value set to get it right or not holding people accountable to get it right, right? I think it all, it's all, all part of the same coin. What's the hardest thing to get right in the executive committee and really make sure that people are, you know, really working dil diligently to get the right decisions, to make the right decisions? That's a big question. So I, I, th I think as a leader of an executive committee or as an executive committee member, you do want to make sure that the culture of the company is one that's fact-based, science-based. And a little bit to Laura's earlier point where people 
speak up if they have an opinion that happens to be different from different from the rest of the group. I mean, with without that, you're you're almost bound to fail. Uh, it's not sufficient, but it 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 is re, it is re, it is required. Um, and and I've always tried to create that that type of environment, and that's going to come from asking good questions. It's going to come from thanking people for bringing up alternative points of view. It's going to be from seeing someone doing high quality diligence and rewarding that team and having another team that did a sloppy job and pointing out, you know, what they missed and, and the errors in the approach and getting better with, you know, each and every time you do it. So that you set a very high standard uh, to, to me, that's critical. Then there's a whole thing called this judgment, you know, and portfolio constru- construction and how much risk do you want to take in any one given project, given wherever you're going on that road that we spoke about earlier. And there's, uh, frankly, there's a lot more, ju- there's a lot more judgment in that, at least for me. Yeah, I, I think that uh, people way undercall the impact of culture and values. I think everyone focuses on strategy, 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 and then, of course, execution and tracking. Um, and we've all heard that expression, uh, you know, that, that you know, if you don't have the right culture and values, you know, they'll eat, people will get their lunch eaten. And it's, it's really true because what you end up seeing is someone could have a, a wonderful plan and it's very clearly articulated, but there's a, what I would call an undercurrent. And then the undercurrent could be the, what I would call the values and the culture that drag everyone down and slow, slow the organization down or avoid the organization taking some risk, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it's a multifaceted thing that has to happen for an organization to be successful. You know, have the right people, have the right assets, make sure you have a clear strategy so people know where we're going so we all can march the same direction, but encourage a value values within your organization and, and really nurture and foster a culture of inclusivity and where people are rewarded for raising the, the things that need to be raised, but also um, try to build a, uh, a, a relationship with their comrades so that, you know, it's a, it's a, it, people want to come to work there. They don't stay there because they have to. Yeah. And, and so, Laura, I think a lot of it, you know, in, in the many interviews, some people talk about the importance of everybody staying in their own lanes. Other executive talks about the importance of not staying in your own lane, right? Other people talk about being a gym rat, being sort of around all the time. So you're sort of totally in the loop and you can kind of uh, make changes along the way or you can make have some influence along the way. And, and, and I think that some people really welcome feedback and didactic sort of discussions. And some people are like, look, this is... I'm the domain expert, you know, I'll handle my lane. And it's not that easy to get it right always. So, you know, how, how do you get that right? And I don't know, I know it's kind of a very broad question. Yeah, so I'll uh, give you, you know, an example of when, I, when you're leading, for, for example, I've led big regions or, and I've uh, led regions internationally, um, long distance. You know, I'm sitting in California and the regions are you know, thousands of miles away. I've had the, the opportunity to work abroad. And so, you know, how do you work, you know, in a, in a different direction with different cultures? But I see fundamentally the most, thing, the most important thing that you see that makes the, the difference, the secret sauce, I guess, is that you take the opportunity to understand uh, and build relationships with your people that you need to work with this way, your peer group, you know, that, that you have to 
get things done with. They have their teams that are working with your teams. And so how do you have a, a shared reality of what needs to happen? Um, but then when you click down, I've always treated my teams that supported me regardless of where it was or what regions. And I knew, knew for sure they reported to a functional leader, but when they were part of my team, we, we really worked very hard to make sure that all the functions felt like they actually were part of that team. The, you know, the team that read, that led the U S organization, the team that led the intercontinental region, the team that led what, you know, whatever the region was called at that time. Right. It, but they really dot, they dotted to me maybe, but they were solid to someone else. And the goal was to make that invisible, that, that we had such a sense of community and such clarity around the strategy and, and what, what I needed from them and their function for us to be successful, that I felt like that really makes a huge difference because it's no longer than about roles or titles. It's more about, about you know, one for one, what is it? One for all, all for one. We're all in this together and we will get praise or we'll get, uh, you know, get the, the eyebrows up. Uh, together and so let's just all you know work and have fun. And I think when you when you uh, encourage that environment and that clarity, what I find is uh, functional barriers go away and who you report to, to goes away because people want to be part of uh, something that's exciting and and uh, feels like we're building something together. So if I can just add something to that um, to go back to the original question, I love people that are domain experts. I do not like working with people that think they're such experts that they can take no input from anybody else and they can't work with others. And so the, the real challenge becomes whoever's leading the team, whether it be the project leader, whether it be the CEO, whether it be the region head, is can you get a group of really excellent people to work together in a high-performing way? And, and that's, that is one of the main elements of, of the job of, of the leader of that, that team or that organization. And it takes time and energy to make that work. And some people try to do that and others don't see any value in it. And I think if you don't see value in it, you will go, you will get just so far and that will be it. You'll never be great. And, so, and David, one of the things you talked about also was, you know, a lot of times it's about, you know, in small biotech you need to get it right, right? You're you're on a, on a race car. You're not in an 18-wheeler. In a big company, you're in an 18-wheeler. Um, and it's a question of, you know, getting the right speed to be fast and getting it the, off the highway to set the right time. But, you know, in, in large companies, and, and Lauren, you know, I talked about it also, um, oftentimes the, the final product that gets delivered from development doesn't really, might not live up to the expectation of commercial, of what commercial needs to ultimately make it successful. So there's a, again, a, a, a really need to get things um, right at the right time and make decisions in a hard way. So David, can you talk about, you talked about how do you oftentimes run teams to make sure potentially two different function areas are really kind of attached at the hip? Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's all the functional areas being attached to the hip and it's all of them asking good questions, all of them contributing. And it's, while it's not a great analogy, the best analogy I can, I can choose is just pick a basketball team. People have their own lanes. They have their skills. They have different heights. They have different speed on the court. Um, some dribble better than others. Some can dunk the ball. Some play defense better. Some are offensive. 
but it's getting those teams to really work together that makes all the difference. And I think we know from the NBA, if you have a team of, of several very good players, uh, they can go win an NBA championship and beat the team that had a superstar or two that didn't play well together. And that's a little bit about, I think, what we're, what we're trying to accomplish here. I'm not sure if I really answered your question, your own, but uh, I hope that helps. Yeah, you, you did. And I think we've also talked about how you oftentimes put two executives to own a problem or or ultimately come up to come up with a uh, with a decision and co-own it. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so it was interesting. So I, I you know, when I inherited uh, the pharma business at Novartis, um, I inherited an organization that had accomplished a lot, but it was very, very functionally uh, driven. And whenever something didn't work out, the marketing person blamed the development person and the development person blamed somebody else. And, you know, we obviously didn't hire because HR didn't do it. You know, it was finger pointing all over, all, all over the place. Um, I, I restructured the whole place basically into teams, therapeutic teams where um, there were basically two in a box. There was a commercial development person who co-led, who co-led and co-owned the decisions. And then the territories, basically the countries were organized exactly the same way and connected to headquarters. So it was very clear who was responsible for what part of the business. And people ask me, well, what does success look like? And you can do all the blah, 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 where we're going to launch more drugs and we're going to hit our revenue target and we're going to make certain profit. Um, but I said, there's, there's, I said there's, a, there's another way to know if we're successful. And they asked me what that was. I said, when there's a presentation being made, if I don't know who the commercial person is and I don't know who the development person is, when you stand up in front of the room and you make the presentation, I'm still not going to know who's who because you both co-own the strategy and, and the plan. Um, and and they were incentivized that way, and it worked. Laura, what about you? What have you seen? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say I agree 100% with what, what, what David said, and I think that goes even beyond the medical and the commercial person. I do think, uh, because it depends on how you even break your functions down, right? Some companies break down value and access into a sub-function, and then you've got government affairs and, and, you know, and, and public policy and advocacy, and then you've got medical affairs. You got all these different departments. Um, at the end of the day, our, there's very few parts of the organization that don't have to be at the table for most conversations because there's such an interplay in our industry of success. You can get the, the uh, development program right, you can get the label right, but we can have a coverage problem or a policy problem. And you, you get stuck. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think the, the more people that um, are rowing the same direction cross-functionally and that to, to what, like what David said, we all have our, our very strong sub, subject, subject matter expertise. We all are experts on a particular thing. And that should be celebrated because actually we need to go deep and we need to go wide. So no one person can go as deep and wide as necessary in our industry. So I think of, of it around how do we link arms in our functional depth so that we can you know, bring that power collectively to, to the problem at hand to make sure, because at the end of the day, we know why we're doing this. We're doing this because we're trying to make a difference in the world and we're trying to make a difference for patients that are suffering. And so our inability not to not do that, shame on us. You know, it really is 
you know, we need to get over it and figure out how to work together. Um, so, you know, the, the, the things that matter, I think at the end of the day are go back to the basic things of, um, people are people, uh, and take the time to understand where someone's coming from so that you can kind of get over that hurdle that may be blocking you. And sometimes when you're really busy, that's hard because you're working 12 hours a day and, you know, you've been away from your family for a week and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, you know, grab a cup of coffee and, uh, you know, ask somebody if they want to have dinner every once in a while, um, because those things will pay spades. Yeah. So, Laura, with, with when commercial, you know, you're always the, the last step in the long process and you ultimately got to deliver the results. Um, but a lot it takes a lot to build the pyramid, right? You don't just put the crowning on the top and and. Um, and a lot of times you're trying to put the crown on the top and, well, the pyramid's not going to quite hold up. And, and sometimes you sort of begin to see things along the way that this is probably not going to turn out quite the way we wanted. But there's been years and years of work. And it's very hard. Um, and not all organizations are willing to have the hard conversations along the way. David, you, you might be on the right path to Liverpool still. Like you wanted to go to Liverpool, but Liverpool's not looking so interesting anymore. Um, and very few people want to start having a discussion three days before getting to Liverpool. Should we even still even bother getting to Liverpool? How do you have those discussions? And do companies really have that? You know, during phase two, and I'm not talking about when a product clearly fails, but when you begin to see competition coming down, and it's not totally obvious that they're going to be better, but you can start really making the call that they're going to be better. Um, maybe you can talk about that because with us on, on our side on Wall Street, this is what we do for a living. And we begin to see all the planes coming uh, and all the ships in transit. And our job is to make those calls. We're not going to get those right all the time. And of course, when we don't get those role, th those things right, it's a part of a big portfolio. In some companies, the portfolio might not be quite that big, right? It might be a lot smaller and getting that right is, is critical. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll start. I think uh, adjusting uh, one's direction, adjusting one's speed makes all the sense along the way. You have to be awake and alert, paying attention to competition, better understanding patient needs, seeing how your compound is evolving in terms of looking at, at data sets. And you have, to, you have to be willing to make changes. And if you wait until three days before you get there, it is pro you probably haven't done it justice. I mean, the two classical times you know, to make those adjustments. But of course, one could do it any any period. Either there is new data generated, you have an end, you have a phase, you have a phase two data set, you have an interaction with an FDA, for example, or because you're doing a portfolio review and and you you have, you know, as a company gets bigger and bigger, you're going to be making more and more choices about what you work on and what you what you don't you don't work on. You know, one of the first things I did with the team when I when I joined Seijin late last year is uh, we did a portfolio review. We prioritized assets, and it wasn't. And the, and the assets at the bottom were not programs that we stopped just because we didn't think they were going to work. We just thought they were going to be less valuable given the context of of where we stood on our timeline, what the competitive set looked like, look at what the market looked like. That those wouldn't be the first things that we would prioritize. So we we went out and prioritized a bunch of assets that we thought had blockbuster potential, where we had global or near global rights. We told that story. At, we told that story at J.P. Morgan, and people started to pay attention. So you can be rewarded for actually doing less sometimes if you if you prioritize, and you're not going to get it right necessarily. And you may have to adjust again and again. Now, obviously, we take it to the other extreme, 
and you're changing the plan every week, you're not going to go anywhere, right? Because our, our, it, takes, it takes a while to develop a drug or come up with a launch plan for a drug or actually launch a drug. It takes, it's a big effort. Um, but please don't wait till three days before you get to Liverpool. Yeah, I, I would uh, add a little bit onto that in terms of, I think about it from three, three different uh, kind of slices or segments. One, what's, the, what's happened with the product? And we refer to this in the industry as the TPP, the target product profile. What's happened with the competition? Because the competition is constantly moving too. They're, they don't, they're not standing still, right? So what, are, is their company investing more money than you anticipated? Has this product become more important, less important? So what's going on with that? And then what's going on with your company? Because companies will also change racehorses. Where are they at uh, along those, that, those lines? So when you, I think you constantly have to look at how competitive I am from the product profile perspective, because we all put our best foot forward and want everything. And then, as David said, sometimes those things don't show up. But if you get the top three, maybe you're still in the game. So it's a constant, constant assessment. But we're not just... Um, we, we don't control just, we don't control everything. We only control ourselves, right? So really making sure we don't, we don't lose sight of what's happening in the environment, both with competition or let's say some crazy thing has happened on reimbursement. Those, all those things have to be um, continually checked as you're moving a product along to make sure that we're, you know, at the end of the day, we're assessing the true overall value of the asset. So, you know, you're on just to add on to what Laura just said. She said, maybe something crazy just happened on reimbursement. You know, the IRA, as one example, has fundamentally changed a lot of things about which drugs companies are going to develop, um, how many indications each of those drugs are going to have. You know, it, it goes on and on and on. Um, if you haven't taken a relook at your TPPs and your portfolio construction since that, since that law came out, you're, you, you better do it soon. And ultimately, one of the things we're really worried about is in the catastrophic phase, when the PBMs are on the hook for 60% of the potential fees, it might not be the best product that's going to win out. It might be the most economical product to them at that point. And that, sadly, is one of the things we're learning in biotech when you're going up against a big pharma. You don't have to just win. You're going to have to win by a lot. Yeah. The, the, the discounts, unless that starts to change, too discounts that go into the PBMs, which then ultimately supplement health insurance, is a big deal that people don't understand. The government doesn't understand. Um, you know, it evolved over a decade uh, and it's it's not the best uh, situation for great outcomes. So, so Laura, let me actually maybe the, the, the next question to you, because we, we touched about on this a little bit. Um, you know, in, investors and David, we touched on this as well. Investors you know, always have their questions and they don't really spend a lot of time probing the management team and really uh, trying to understand the management team. And it, it might be because that's not something that they oftentimes can really have the tools to really better understand how that translates into value over time. What, what three questions would you recommend investors really probe on when they meet with management teams to understand, you know, are they doing a good job? So I would probably start off with what the, the plan is. What is the core strategy for the organization and, and get into the details. Sometimes if you stay too high, you never get the answer because you didn't ask it. So I think that it's really important that if there's, you know, if product A and B are the 90% value for the organization, make sure you understand enough about the strategy and the annual deliverables that go along with that 
so that you can ask those core questions to see if something's going off the rails or if something substantially has changed. So, you know, what's the what's the plan? What are the issues uh, or advances that have happened with the plan? And if something's off course, what you, what are you going to do to correct it? So, you know, the management team is very, very, very important for a whole whole bunch of reasons. You know, the lowest point, they're not if if it's not a an experienced management team, they're probably not going to put a great plan together. Uh, if they're not experienced managers, or if they're just not great managers, they're not likely to hire excellent people uh, to to work for them. So it starts bringing, you know, the kinds of questions that we don't get typically asked, but they probably should, uh, would be, um, you know, what have these individuals actually delivered before? You know, there's probably about 2,000 people that have invented every single drug in our industry, but who's really done the work? Um, How do they work together? How do do you incentivize people to really work together? How do you make that? What's the magic sauce? If you just tell me we all have equity in the company, that's probably not really the answer I would be I would be looking for. Ask the management team to explain how they make some hard choices because they're going to have to make lots of hard choices. Some of those early stage company presentations I've seen, you know, these new modalities or these new drugs will treat everything, you know, and and, is, is, and we're just going to figure it out somehow along the way. Um, that just tells me these are people that are probably, well, they might be good people. They're probably not highly functioning together as as a team and when there's a crisis uh it will be it will be a problem but if they're a very good team and this is why you see sometimes the same team of people make more than one drug they go place to place they're a very good team and they know and they work well together a lot of the things that we talked about earlier which will be asking the hard questions um having a discussion around the tpp understanding competition will be discussed earlier and the team will find a, a way to adjust and come out with a, an end product at the end, which still creates value for, for, for the investor. As opposed to, we've hired a whole bunch of people who are doing something for the first time, and just because we like the science and we're hopeful this is going to be the next mRNA construct or, or, or something like that. Um, but it is hard. It's, hard. it's hard as an investor to really, to really get to a level of depth with the executives in these teams to, to really know. Now there are some investors who just have a sense, right? You sit in the room with them, they ask a couple of questions. They, they have a way to pick out people that are likely to deliver versus people that, that, that are not. Um, I'm not sure exactly how they do it, but there are those, there are those investors out there. And I think it's a real, it's a real skill set. And the other thing I would add to that is also, um, Use other, so you, you're going to ask the team and you're going to have, I'm sure the, a lot of the investor, uh, investors have smart people on their teams that can ask questions, but also stay engaged with the uh, physician community that, you know, especially if you're an investor in a particular area, you keep, you keep your toes into the, in, in the water around, let's just say if it's oncology, you know, make sure you've got top oncologists in that area that you're connecting with so that you're not just, you, you, your, your filters are uh, full of uh, rich information as opposed to old information or what you want to hear information. Yeah. A lot of times it's important to read the room. It's important to, to realize and, and assess are people aligned, see how people react when their colleague makes a comment. You know, we oftentimes ask clinical financial questions or commercial questions just to see when they're not, when their colleagues are not in the room, just to see how they answer it's a sombering to see sometimes what you hear. Uh, sometimes they're 
completely walking back and not wanting to own anything uh, that their colleague might be, is, you know, in charge of. There's a lot of volume goes right there, you know, through that that alone. So let me go to what, what I like the most about the, these podcasts and kind of learning to learning to get to know the people a little bit more personal. So maybe to you, Laura, would you rather climb Everest, right the Tour de France, or compete in an F1 race? With a caveat, though, that you have to finish it. Yes. So um, you'll learn a little bit about me through my answer, with the first thing being, I'm not a big fan of cold weather. Uh, so, I, so that eliminates climbing Mount Everest. Uh, so I would pick the, the Tour de France uh, because the ride's beautiful, uh, great exercise. The only request that I would have that would be the, the seat would have to be a little bit more padded. Uh, your own of, of those uh, of those three, I, w- I would definitely uh, choose choose F one. Uh, I I can't think of anything more exciting, and at least from my experience, you know, driving cars on a track, there's, there's a couple things that that are clear. You need while you're in the moment, you requ- it requires absolute focus. There, there, otherwise, you're you're going to be driving off the track. Um, you have to have a strategy because the F one race, you know. There are many laps, and how you finish is 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 relevant. With each lap or each race, there's, there's this idea of continuously getting better, whether it be versus the people you're competing with, or just yourself, just improving your own skill set. And there's a there's a there's a lot of teamwork. You know, the whole idea we talked earlier about high performing teams. You see them come into the pits, you know, get fueled up, get the tires changed, whatever it may be. Making that teamwork, you know, work magic is is extremely rewarding. So. So for me, uh, that would be it. I got to tell you, being on a racetrack is one of those few moments when when you're able to shut out the entire rest of the world because things are going by so fast and you have to look so far down the track to be successful. Uh, it really takes you out of the here and now and, and puts you into this forward thinking place I'm trying to get to, that road I'm trying to drive down with that with that destination. It's, 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 it's big fun. So F, sign me up for F1. Yeah, so I'm I'm a big of big fan of F1. I've never been in a race car. I have to admit, um, I am a biker, and I gotta tell you, so for me, it's between Everest and the Tour de France. And in and I don't in my own mind, I'm not sure which one is harder. To be honest, I know for sure that I will not be able to finish the Tour de France. I don't know what I'd be more worried about: the climb or the descent. That descent going 60 miles an hour with crosswinds. Uh, going down, you know, descents in uh, in Aspen with thirty mile an hour crosswinds—that's <laughs> life threatening. So I'm probably going to choose Everest because I've seen other people can finish it, and I can kind of feel like I can finish it. But so much of it depends on the weather, obviously. Well, you you gave us three extreme sports to to choose among. I would imagine all three of them are extraordinarily difficult. I can tell you my wife is not signing me up for Everest. She's still going to sign me up to the other two. Better chance of returning. If you had to change one thing in your childhood, what would it be? I would learn a second language. I would want to learn a second language. Uh, if, if I would tell my parents you know, at a young age, please <laughs> get me to learn a second language. Because I, having um, moved abroad and um, our girls were young when, when we moved, the impact of being able to learn a second language at a young age just wires your brain very differently. And it makes the second language the third language just makes you more versatile. And I think, you know, communication is so critical around, you know, to, to bond with people. And so as you travel around the world, uh, the ability to be able to communicate in a, in their language is, 
just a, a plus plus plus. So that's that's what I would want. So so mine will overlap quite a bit. It would be travel more. I was uh, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, I'm not sure I really left New Jersey and maybe maybe New York until I was probably uh, 20 some years old. And I joined Booz Allen and started doing assignments basically in Europe. And it the world when the world started to open to me, um, I I just became even thirstier for for, for knowledge. It fueled all my curiosity. And I, I believe, you know, living overseas has made, made me a better person. So if I could change that, I, I would. Yeah. So I, I moved here when I was 13. Uh, I grew up in Israel. So we learned Arabic in grade fourth grade. And then English, I think, started at fifth. Um, and I have four sisters. So I would vote for having a brother, too. That's the one thing I would say. Well, great. Uh, Laura and David, always great to see you. This was really, really insightful. I really appreciate it. And I think it's going to be very well received by both executives and investors. So I think it's really going to be a great mishmash and combination of both. So really, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you, David. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jerome. Thanks, thanks for having us. Um, for everybody that's listening, uh, this is a terrific industry. Uh, we do things for patients in this industry that practically nobody else can do. It's a privilege to work in it. Some could argue the times could be a bit better. They will get better. And in the meantime, we're going to work hard and make new medicines. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.